We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show and other Washington Post podcasts so we can keep making things you want to hear. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want to hear from us. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. My guest has been her state's Secretary of Health. She's represented her state in Congress. Today, she is said to be on Joe Biden's vice presidential shortlist. And if chosen, she would be the first Latinx American on a presidential ticket. She is New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Hear what she has to say about that and her state's response to coronavirus in this special Cape Up Live episode right now. Governor, welcome. You know, I'm delighted to be on your show. Nice to meet you and spend a little time with you, Jonathan. Likewise. Thank you very much for being here. Now, I mentioned that you were the, the health secretary. You were a member of Congress because they gave you incredible insight, I think, in how to deal with the coronavirus early on. You declared a statewide health emergency on March 11th when there were only four cases in your state. What did you see that pushed that pushed you to move so quickly? Well, uh, two things that you know that this virus is moving and so it comes with travelers. We've got commuters, we're a movie hub. Uh, I was still dealing with folks who were trapped on a cruise in California and I've dealt with the pandemic before. And the earlier you start and the more aggressively you start, the better control and management efforts you have. And this is the problem because you can't see the pandemic. Everyone, I think, falsely assumes it won't come here. It'll be easy. And we'll wait uh, until we see what's happening. Because I think for too many leaders, it's easier to explain. You have to move immediately. Otherwise, it rages out of control. And we're seeing that all across the country now. Well, let me follow up. You said you've been through a pandemic before. Which are you talking, Ebola or something else? Flu. So we had two issues. We had a flu epidemic. I said pandemic, epidemic in 2007, 2008. And then in 2005, we had a flu vaccine shortage. So when you are in a state where you've got higher uh, per capita uh, issues related to chronic issues for children and adults, and that you have a higher death rate then from influenza. We have a third of the capacity of healthcare providers and hospitalizations. I literally had to join with Illinois to uh, import flu vaccine from Canada, which you really couldn't do then. And we found a, a soft, can I say, loophole and brought it in and I protected New Mexico residents then. Uh, we took thimerosal out of flu vaccine, so I took all the mercury out of it to further protect New Mexicans. I wouldn't buy anything that had thimerosal in it. And then when the epidemic was coming, the same thing. You didn't have sufficient investments in public health. So getting to people, getting them vaccinated, partnering with a limited uh, uh, private provider group was really challenging. So uh, probably answering this too long, Jonathan, but in December... I knew this was coming. I asked my teams to start planning in early January. So we began to have roundtables and start looking about where we would secure PPE and testing supplies. 
That's really interesting. You started focusing on this on in December and then moving with your staff in January. So you anticipated what could happen. But did you anticipate the inaction from the federal government in terms of having a national strategy? No. In my wildest dreams, I would not be spending my own specific time finding supplies, testing supplies, and the right manufacturers, trying to figure out which instruments, right, the FDA was going to authorize in an emergency use environment to then test for the, for the virus. So not every instrument was available, not every then reagent is available, not every testing kit, because they're not all, they weren't at the time, universal, getting swabs, and then chasing PPE. And then in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't be dealing with the federal government who would literally then take the things that you secured and redistribute them for the country. And while you want it to be a country focus, because it wasn't, it meant that you were fighting, frankly, with other governors and FEMA to get the adequate supplies into your state. And now we're seeing it occur again, because there was, without any federal strategy still, now that you have these outbreaks, governors are in the same situation, chasing down supplies and PPE and trying to adequately cover their first responders. It's the most outrageous environment I've ever worked on, worked in in my entire career. So now, so now let's talk about the outrageous environment that you are working in in your state. You held a press conference, I believe, last Thursday, where you said the trends, quote, are going in the wrong direction. What's the latest data from your state and what's driving them? So two things we believe um, that we were we flattened the curve early. Uh, we did have some significant issues in the northwestern part of the state, Jonathan. I think it's pretty well known in the country. Uh, folks like the Navajo Nation that are dealing with really critical issues. One. You've got people living in very remote areas without running water or electricity. Two, they're not near any healthcare services, largely supplied also by the federal government. Two, they're dealing with a tri-state region with very different rules, very different testing strategies, very different sort of resource uh, developed states. Uh, and then the third thing is uh, they have a sicker population. They have incredible poverty and chronic disease issues. Again, largely a failure of federal government. And I can tell you that I see incredible leadership by the Navajo Nation. But early on, I signal an alarm to the White House that we need to do something specific uh, in Indian country and more specific to the Navajo Nation because they are so at risk. And I couldn't get kind of a tri-state uh, strategy up and running. I couldn't get Arizona to really think about aggressive testing strategies and setting up uh, uh, screening systems or triage systems at the border areas, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico. It's really challenging. I also had trouble, although great cooperative efforts, but just not the kind of leadership I needed early on from Indian Health Service. So except for that, New Mexico frankly, was lowering seeing a reduction in cases in other counties in the state. So we did a very slow opening. We introduced risk. We knew that we, we introduced risk, that you got to mitigate it by people's personal behavior. And I need my surrounding states to be in a like situation. And what happened? 
surrounding states not in a like situation. I have to say that New Mexicans and uh, our uh, border states' personal behaviors weren't as good as they needed to be. Uh, and so we saw then a huge rise, a jump in cases, and we believe in the next couple of weeks we'll see a jump in also mortality rates, which I'm devastated by. So I immediately rolled back many of those issues, and now we are literally citing New Mexicans and out-of-staters. If they're not quarantined out-of-staters and if New Mexicans aren't wearing masks all the time, if you're outside of your house, you have to have a mask on. You, you've given me so much to follow up on in that answer. I'm going to go back to the to what you were saying about the Navajo Nation because I had a question about that. But I, I wanted to zero in on something I think I missed. You said that you reached out to the to the White House, uh, or at least reached out to the White House or alerted the White House. But I did not hear you say you heard back from the White House. So in in March, I signaled the alarm that I was incredibly worried that we didn't have a cohesive effort that would protect uh, our sovereign nations in New Mexico and particularly the Navajo Nation, just given where it sits, right? Three states, the reservation covers Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, and they lack basic infrastructure still. And I had just signed uh, in the law an incredible capital investment to connect them to running water, not in all the chapters. I got to figure out the rest of the laterals, but I'm clear about what these risks are and clear about what we need to do with the Navajo Nation. And it's not so much that I didn't hear back from the White House. It's the, it's it's more, Jonathan, about the, staying the course with that leadership, being cohesive and comprehensive. What does it look like? What does it mean? And instead, I ended up locking down a city, Gallup, doing a lot of work in one of the counties, McKinley County, delivering all the food and water to all of those surrounding, that's the local body of government for the Navajo Nation chapter houses, and the, the president and vice president and the council of the Navajo Nation, likewise, have a very extreme curfews, lockdowns. And the only way that works is if we're bringing and work with them supplies. Federal government took them more than four to six weeks to even get FEMA on the ground operating there. And I don't think they were nearly as effective until way too late in getting adequate testing supplies. And even today, if Indian Health Service runs a COVID-19 test, it will take twice as long or even longer to get it back from a laboratory. That if those tests came to our state laboratory, I can turn those around in 24 to 48 hours mm. routinely. The sooner we know you're infected, the better we are at managing the isolation. And it's the state of New Mexico that did all the isolation sites not the federal government. Well, and that's interesting that you can turn it around in, in New Mexico in 24 to 48 hours. We're hearing from, um, I've been hearing at least from other states such as Florida, where it can take up to a week uh, to get results back. Let me follow up on a, a second thing you mentioned in that in that first answer, and that was about people coming in from other states. Now, yeah. as we've been talking about, your state have, has relatively um, a lower number of COVID cases compared to your neighboring states like Colorado, and Arizona, but COVID patients from say Pima County, Arizona are now being moved to Albuquerque and treated there due to staffing and equipment shortages in Arizona. Are you concerned about the potential risk this poses to New Mexicans? 
You bet we are. And we've been watching, Jonathan, the hospitalization rates in all of the surrounding states. And early on, and I get it, New Mexicans have every right to be both concerned about their personal well-being and safety and that of their families and what's happening economically. And I had a lot of New Mexicans on Texas border areas that do get their health care in Midland and Lubbock and Early on in the pandemic, they said, look, we've got plenty of access to healthcare providers because I wouldn't let New Mexicans travel. If you went over the border, you had to come back in quarantine. And I got a lot of pushback about that, but just what we predicted, if we aren't careful, those hospitals fill up, you participate in moving the virus, of course, none of our hospitals, it's A, illegal, and B, even if it wasn't, no American would deny another American health care. I mean, that's not who we are, but it does create real challenges in New Mexico where I have a third the hospital capacity and a third the ventilator capacity per capita than any other state in the nation. So as we're picking up support to Texas and to Arizona, that means that we have less available for our folks here, which means I have to do an even better job at managing COVID. And New Mexicans are going to have to have even more personal responsibility than many other Americans. And uh, at some point, that fairness argument is really, I hope, going to play out in this political arena. Because if we'd done a national, if we'd had an effective national strategy, these equity challenges could have been incredibly mitigated and tens of thousands of lives across this nation would have been saved. Well, this is a good segue to the third follow-up uh, that I wanted to ask you about, and that's masks. You've mandated that New Mexicans wear masks. Do you think that there should be a national mandate that we should wear masks? Absolutely. I don't have any idea, Jonathan, how masks became political. Look, nobody wants to wear them. I, I agree with that basic statement there. We don't wear masks, Americans. We haven't done that. Other societies and countries and their public health efforts really promote mask wearing. We haven't done that. Uh, so it's very uh, uncomfortable and it's uh, not something that uh, we have very, very effective experience at. But they mitigate right? The transmission of this virus. So it's here. We have no vaccine. We don't yet have really effective treatments. So the only thing we have is to control the rate of spread or rate of infection. And if we can mitigate that by mask wearing, why wouldn't we? Because then it means you can introduce more risk like schools and more businesses at close to full capacity. And without them, you can't because you can't control your rate of infection. And I, you know, New Mexicans, I'm gonna give them a great shout out. Uh, they don't like it, I would say overall. Uh, they have been, I think, disappointed that I've mandated now that we're gonna enforce that mandate. But I will tell you that we can see by, uh, uh, we, we use a, one of the national laboratories has a very interesting way of reviewing social media and then getting just other anecdotal data. And they can tell you based on that with a fairly uh, productive degree of certainty, how much of that mask wearing is taking hold, right? How much am I increasing every day? And we're seeing dramatic increases in the number of people wearing masks all the time. 
can't tell you that it's at 80%, which we would like to have 80 or 85%. That means I can introduce more risk. Um, but it may be where it went from 30 to 55 and closing in on 60 and 70%. And this will make a huge difference in our state. And for the New Mexicans who have sacrificed, right, just done it, even though they disagree and are working at protecting others and making sure that we just stay together as we battle COVID, I thank them all because it hasn't been easy. Well, Governor, let me ask you this about, about enforcement of this, the, the mask mandate. Uh, have you gotten law enforcement on board with this? And I'm asking because we have seen situations where law enforcement have made it clear that, that they're not about this. There was an interview on CNN where uh, a sheriff, I believe in, I, I don't want to say the state in case I get it wrong, but a, a local sheriff, not in your state, basically said, hey, this is America. People should have a choice of whether they want to wear a mask or not. Are you facing that kind of pushback in New Mexico from law enforcement? We are. Some of it is absolute pushback. We will not assist you at the local level. Uh, uh, I can't say primarily sheriffs who were elected, right? And try, I think people are treating this pandemic again as a political situation. It is not a political situation. It does not care whether you're Republican or Democrat, young or old, whether you're independent or declined to state. Uh, it does not care at all about its hosts. It will attack you, right, indiscriminately. And so I think that's largely been the response. I've got some local police departments, I think that are also reluctant, but here's what I do have. Nearly universally, nearly, everyone will educate folks and try to get their first responders to be better um, at wearing masks. I mean, they should be wearing masks all of the time as, as first responders. I'm appalled when they don't. Uh, and then I've got several jurisdictions who are now going to actually issue citations with the state police who have already been issuing citations. So I have to uh, both admit that we're having to grow that support and invest in that advocacy, but I'm happy to also report that we've got many more than I think a lot of states in this situation uh, can expect early on in terms of making sure that we do enforcement, because I've made it clear the more people who wear masks, the better we are, then the better it is for us as a state to then carefully, methodically, and slowly reintroduce some risk. And our goal is schools. And I am not Pollyanna. The countries that have successfully opened schools didn't just bend the curve, they crushed the curve. Countries like Germany that flattened the curve, but still had an infection rate over one, they had trouble they had to open then reduce participation and close then reopen. And I think that the United States ought to work diligently not to be in that situation. And I'm working diligently not to be in that situation. Well, Governor, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm wondering what do you make of the president of the United States threatening schools if they don't reopen or threaten threatening yeah threatening schools if they aren't reopened does you've already announced that you have um stopped contact sports do you think it's responsible to open up schools on the normal schedule 
it, it, I think that each state needs to be really careful about what their rate of infection is and where they're, whether they've bent that curve at all before they reopen schools. They will put that workforce at risk and you can't maintain it. And while we don't believe kids are super vectors and we're seeing that kids don't seem to have the same, uh, at least consistently, really negative impacts, from having COVID. There's a lot we still don't know. And New Mexico has a higher rate of infection among children than any other state or most states. I need to actually be careful about that with the last set of data over the last week, uh, but it's way too high. So I'm really cautious about those risks. And here's my response uh, to the federal government. Look, uh, first of all, they have, this seems to me to be more of a political consistent attack on public education. Uh, this is an administration that doesn't want to fund public education, that has been harsh and cruel about investments and strategies and outcomes for public education. And I think, uh, frankly, uh, Congress has worked really diligently to try to counteract many of the uh, proposals uh, that are discriminatory on their face and for a state that's majority-majority in terms of its population, the sort of Betsy DeVos plan for public education uh, is unacceptable. So part of the same pattern, if you will. The threat is when this president can't get all of the governors on the same page, that's what he goes to. I mean, just less than a month ago, we called us all jerks on the telephone for not reopening our economies. Uh, it's an outrageous threat. It's incredibly immature. And the worst is it's dangerous because there isn't a national strategy. I don't mind that the White House is clear that education and going back to school is really important. These kids need to go back to school, but you better weigh those risks and you ought to be a partner, right? You're not a hammer. And this is no time to pretend that you cared about public education. So I find this threat another really shallow attempt at trying to get their way without having any real plan. And the other thing I really have to say is that one-on-one -on -one, members of the task force and members of the White House are in fact really effective at solving many of the uh, state's problems. If I needed more testing supplies, I could get Amanda Burks to put us on the testing strategy pilot. If um, I'm having trouble with one of the manufacturers, I can call the chief of staff and they work on figuring that out. If we, for um, uh, several weeks, New Mexico was a tier two state, which meant for some reason, I don't know how that arbitrarily got done. We couldn't get as many PPE and related supplies in. I got that removed. We've had folks come here and help navigate even the national laboratory support. They're now working on the detention centers. I want them to follow every federal detention center ought to follow the same uh, uh, prison reform and prison activities that we have, making sure that our inmates and our officers are as safe as they can be. We had an outbreak. Where did it come in? Federal detention center. And so I'm getting some support now. But this could have been done as a federal strategy. And again, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in with an out of control national infection rate, where it's for an industrialized nation, it's the worst. And so many more people have died and will die. It's unconscionable for mm -hmm. this nation to be in this situation.
Governor, we've got seven minutes and I've got more than seven questions to ask you. I'm going to go to a question from from a a, um, a viewer who and you've mentioned several times that uh, people coming in from out of state have to quarantine. And this question from George Henry, George Henry Schneider from Oregon asks, you're requiring a 14 day quarantine for most visitors to New Mexico. How are you enforcing that? So enforcing the quarantine is tough. We're asking uh, that our lodging industry don't accept, first of all, that's not an enforcement, but it's a proactive approach. You should not have any uh, reservations from folks who are out of state unless they affirm that they're clear that they have to stay in that cabin the entire 14 days before they can go out. We're asking the same things of our businesses. We're restricting access to things like uh, 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 restaurants so that it, I hope it's not as enticing. They have to wear a mask. We have signs outside at the airport. We've got staff who tell you it's a 14 day quarantine. If you're pulled over or you're out without a mask and we find out that you're from out of state, you will get cited for violating a 14 day quarantine. The hard part about enforcing it is that we're not at every airport. People are driving in, I do not know. And if one of our hospitality industry partners doesn't hold them accountable, I may or may not know about that situation. So mm -hmm. better than enforcement, we're trying to be proactive, which means I'm literally advertising through our Department of Tourism saying as much as we want your business, this is not when it's good for business. I need you to stay home and I've eliminated, you can't go to any of our parks. So no camping, no hiking, no boating. If you're from out of state, you can't be at those parks. So it's a combination of you can be sighted and uh, being as proactive and firm about travelers as we can. And we're mm -hmm. looking at some proposals like Alaska, which uh, allows some uh, travelers to bring you a very recent negative test. And I'm looking about whether or not that might be a vehicle to ease up as we introduce more risk in the future. Okay, Governor, fair warning. I have two questions. And we're going to go over and we're going to go over time because I want you to answer them both. The first one has to do with the, the, the environment that we're in right now, um, the racial environment that we're in right now. You had a situation in New Mexico where armed right wing militias uh, shot someone while people were taking taking down a statue. Could you just reflect on the conversation that we're having right now about racial injustice, but also about the statues conversation, your view about where we are right now. I really appreciate that, Jonathan. So I'm going to try to, they're still investigating exactly the individual who shot, uh, shot fired the shots that critically injured a young man during a protest, uh, really making clear that this is also a state that has institutional racism and we need to do everything in our power to address it. So it's not really clear if someone of that militia, the Civil Guard, actually was the perpetrator of the uh, shots fired. But what we do know is this, the militia should not have been engaging or intimidating or creating an environment that absolutely created the conditions for that hostile event and that risk. And that's untenable. And we think as 
I think actually this week there will be a charges filed against this New Mexico militia for bringing intimidation to many of our protests. Two, uh, the whole issue, so it's unacceptable in New Mexico and we're doing everything we can about it and we are attending to, as we should as leaders, that racial unrest in this climate, in this country, requires every single leadership tool in our toolbox. Uh, and if we don't do it now, it's not gonna get done. And we will continue uh, forwarding our racial uh, or racist past. And I wanna be in a state that rejects that and does everything that we can. New Mexico has a tough history. And we have a, uh, our largest city is still under a consent decree from the Department of Justice for excessive force with their police department. Uh, we have uh, an incredibly negative uh, uh, outcome, a set of uh, statistics about excessive force resulting in the death uh, involving an officer shooting of an individual. So we are really clear about how this can get out of hand in ways nobody wants. So right now, we've got a commission on civil rights. It's gonna look at police brutality in, in particular. That means new police training requirements for de-escalation, looking at community police strategies that are more about less of, I'm sorry, about a name and more about real community efforts that build trust and protect us in whole different ways. We're engaging our public education department. We're not gonna end institutional racism until we do something different in education. We're now requiring body cams of every police jurisdiction and I've created a racial council for justice. You talked about statues. Well, New Mexico's got its own, right, uh, uh, effort at the conquistadors who came here uh, 400 years ago. They came as conquerors and they conquered, and these are individuals, of course, that I'm related to, uh, and they enslaved Native Americans, and the amount of cruelty uh, is, quite frankly, really untold and unknown in our state because we don't teach it. Somewhere in this state is an incredible opportunity, given that we're so multicultural and a minority majority state, that we need statues that are clear, and clearly marked about a, a, a past we are not proud of and why there are important teaching moments, but they can't be celebrated. And we've gotta be in a place where we celebrate the victories of coming together and attacking racism and not abiding by a past that was about conquering, killing, raping, murdering, or enslaving. And we know that's how the world moved, but we should be much more enlightened than that today. And we should be teaching every American that we can only heal by recognizing our past and being accountable to it, but also preventing it from moving any anywhere in the future. And that's what New Mexico is gonna do. And I'm really proud of that. And it won't be easy. If I made that sound easy, uh, I want everyone to know who's watching your show, it, it will not be easy. Governor, last question. As I mentioned in the, in the introduction, you are said to be on the short list to be Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate. If you're selected, you'd be the first Latinx American to be on a presidential ticket. Talk personally about what it means to you and your family that your name is being talked about as a potential vice president of the United States. 
Oh, that's a tough question, Jonathan. Uh, I lost my father almost 10 years ago. Uh, and I announced one day in the backyard that I wanted to run for Congress because I cared so much about health care. And at the time in the primary, uh, both uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack, Senator Barack Obama were debating in a primary health care changes so that we could have adequate coverage and protect Americans. And I was all in. I wanted it. And I have to say that my children and you know, my close friends were just shaking their head. You can't just never run for office and go right into a contested primary for Congress. And my father uh, was my number one champion. He was incredibly proud. We've got a very proud family. My my grandfather was the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice and chief justice in the state. A cousin of mine was the very first uh, a member of Congress. He was a uh, Republican. Uh, we lost him a couple of years ago, Manuel Lujan. He was a secretary of the interior for the first Bush administration. And so there are very deep rooted legacies here. And I can tell you unequivocally, uh, my father just in the conversation would be incredibly proud. For me personally, um, I, I want a White House, I want a Biden White House that is clear about governing, clear about respecting all Americans, and clear about national strategies that can really make a difference in governors being able to make the kinds of differences they need and bringing Congress back together so that they're a more cohesive political body. I want Biden to pick the person who gets his ticket elected and allows him to do the kind of leadership renewals and efforts in this country that are so badly needed. So it's flattering, um, but I try to just keep focused here. And I am grateful uh, that my uh, my family legacy gets an opportunity to get promoted unabashed on your incredible program here today. Well, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, thank you very much for, for being here, for coming on the podcast and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.